I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, welcome everybody to another edition of I-94. It is our first of the year for 2021, and this starts our fifth season. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good afternoon. Good morning. It's not afternoon. It's yeah. not afternoon yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Happy New Year. Just That's go a, with Happy it's, New Year. It's, it's, Happy a great, it's a great start. Mr. Michael Sack. How you doing, Jamie? Good, good. Hey, today we're joined uh, through the miracle of Zoom by the author Kevin Matson. Uh, he's got a new book out from Oxford University Press. It's called We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. It's amazing. So we were talking a little bit before the show, before we press play. You know, two of the members of the show are old enough to remember this kind of uh, second wave of punk rock that you focus on in America and the Reagan era. Mike uh, is is not old enough to remember Ronald Reagan, which I think is a blessing. I had a night shirt with Ronald Reagan on it. You did? It's sad to say, yeah. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> did you have footies too? Uh, yes. Great. That's Con- great. You know, you probably could sell and that a butt for, patch. You probably could sell that for a lot of money today. You know, it's. I'll have to ask my parents if it's somewhere around yeah, there. Yeah, it's Your probably. But I, I'm pretty sure he was holding a, uh, uh, an M16 and wearing an American flag bandana. That's amazing. Oh. Yeah. Um, and disgusting. Yeah. Um, Creepy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good good item for a baby. That's a good item for a baby. Yeah. Get them started young. Yeah. Um, you know they did strange things in Detroit, Kevin. Um, <laughs> Let's, your book starts off uh, kind of uh, the very beginning of the 1980s. And just to set the scene, uh, you know, there were basically a couple waves of punk rock, depending on how you think about it. Obviously, there was, you know, the wave that came over from Britain. Uh, the Sex Pistols are probably the best known band. But, you know, there was The Clash, The Stranglers, a, a whole group of bands in the late 70s. Some people consider Detroit's MC5 to be one of the first kind of proto-punk bands. And, of course, that was the 60s. They played here in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention. You're really concerned in this book about the cultural reaction to when Ronald Reagan became president, which happened after a long period of what people considered stagnation. Uh, I don't think many people necessarily remember it, but you know there was gas shortages back then. Stagflation was a real thing. Uh, there was a sense that the end of the 1970s, uh, a lot of the promise of the American dream had kind of been drained out. And when Ronald Reagan appeared on the scene, he was a former Hollywood actor. He had actually been a Democrat in California before he ran for office there. And he'd been the head of the Screen Actors Guild. He was not necessarily a popular film actor. He had been in a, a number of films in the in the 1950s, but not necessarily a big box office draw, but he was a clever organizer of the Actors Union. And he parlayed that with California Republicans into a national platform. Uh, and California is one of the places where punk rock started. And you, you talk about in your book with bands such as the Dead Kennedys from the Bay Area, Black Flag from around Southern California, TSOL, a number of those bands that were emerging kind of out of this very fertile uh, climate that you argue kind of existed in reaction to Ronald Reagan and what he stood for. So, Kevin, if you don't mind starting off, can you tell us a little bit about why, first of all, Reagan was an attractive figure to so many Americans of a certain genre and the way he kind of sold himself? Because I think that would tell our uh, listeners really why there was such a fierce artistic reaction to him. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a great question um, to begin with. Uh, I think that uh, what... uh, Ronald Reagan represented to uh, the voters of America in 1980 was um, a candidate who could pull the country out of its what was called at that point in time malaise. That's based upon a speech that Jimmy Carter gave in 1979 in which he talked about the oil crisis and talked about how America's consumer culture was was getting in the way of being able to solve the problems of the oil crisis. And Ronald Reagan really reacted to that speech by saying something like, you know, the American people are great. There's no reason to question their 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 greatness. What we need is better leadership. And um, he always, I think, based his kind of view of the world on dreams. He was a big guy. uh, He talked all the time about dreams and how dreams kind of informed his political thought. And I think what he gave was a really happy, smiley-faced version of the United States at a time in which the country was really down on its heels. I mean, you've got the, the Iranian hostage crisis. You've got the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. You've got the oil crisis. I mean, these are times that are really 
tough. And Reagan gave a very kind of smiley and happy and optimistic view that I think attracted a lot of voters. Clearly, it it, meant, it meant that Jimmy Carter didn't win his second term. Um, and so I think that he he really played up that sort of you know dream. Uh, happy leadership and will turn the country around sort of spirit. And and then I think that that really is in some ways what a lot of the original 1980 punk bands um, were really re reacting to and rejecting in, in so many different ways. And it's interesting because I think the way that Reagan sold that, you know, he, he has been now kind of canonized on the right as a, yep. a, uh, archetypical figure who really changed how American politics was run. I think listeners probably will see some um, comparisons to the current ex-president who's departing, uh, we hope, this week, um, who also uh, has dealt in a kind of alternate reality, though hardly with Reagan's skill and salesmanship. Um, it's interesting to think of the artistic reactions, of course, that have happened around the world in relation to Trump. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later on. But getting back to Reagan, I, I kind of want to drill down on this because I remember very distinctly, a lot of people were actually terrified of Ronald Reagan being president. I remember my parents were both union. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a Democrat, both you know steadfast yeah. union members. I remember my mom crying when he won. And my father was just like infuriated, you know, and he, you know, he targeted these union people and ended up being the largest, uh, large reason why unions are where they're at today, which is yeah. decimated. And of course, he fired all the air traffic controllers yeah. almost on his <laughs> right. first day in office, yeah. which was one of the biggest union busting moves ever made. And what a lot of people don't know is most air traffic controllers are Air Force veterans. And I believe that that uh, group was 75% veterans because you, you, know, you can get out of the Air Force and get a job as an air traffic controller. People don't talk about that much, but a lot of those, yeah. all these rah, rah, we love veterans, right wingers, but that- I, That I, was one of the first things. And people were also scared because they thought he was nuts. You know, they, they were worried about him having the nuclear codes. I remember, and mm -hmm. you know, this also ties back into something that was in the zeitgeist. And of course you mentioned the, the famous Peace War compilation album, uh, which I had, a, I don't know if you had a copy of it, Jeremy, yeah, I, I did. did. Yeah, yeah, a great, I had all those MRR. Yeah, great double compilation with- Do with, you still uh, have it with all those inserts? I do, well, it burned up in a house fire, but I, oh. I, I have a digital copy of it. It's a classic album, folks, if you've never heard that compilation, it was really groundbreaking. But the fear of nuclear annihilation was something that was extremely real when, when Reagan took power. There was a fear of escalation in the Middle East. There was a fear of nuclear conflict with Russia. Um, and, and so some of this came out of the anti-nuclear movement. You know, you talk very you know eloquently in your book about how there were these different strains of bands who were very interested in civil engagement and civil action. Some of the people were just, you know, wanting to play music. Some of the people thought their music was a way to communicate uh, their point of view, whether it was minor threat talking about straight edge, whether it was uh, MDC trying to talk about animal lives. This was something that was a little uh, a throwback in a weird way to some of the message singer-songwriters in the 1960s, but it was absolutely in the ferment around Ronald Reagan. Yeah, and I think that actually, you know, I, I've, I've often thought about asking people how many songs they can name as protest songs during the 1960s. And it's actually a very small list. People, I think, have misconceived the counterculture of the 60s as being, you know, heavily politicized. And I just think that that's, that's something of a myth. If you look at 1980s um, punk stuff... I'd say almost every song is a protest song. It may not be political protest. It may be, you know, kind of personal protest, but every song really is a protest song. Um, and it's very hard to find any, you know, love songs when you look at 1980s punk stuff. Um, so I think that, you know, there's this kind of misconception that, you know, everybody was political in the 60s and then everybody was apathetic in the 80s. And obviously I think that's totally false. I also think you're absolutely right about Ronald Reagan. I, I, I noticed um, amongst a lot of my students that they associate Reagan with the last stages of his presidency when he's negotiating with Gorbachev and essentially calling a kind of halt to the arms race at that point in time. He's painted as a dove at that point. But if you follow him from 1980 to 1981 to 1982 to 1983, he is scary. I mean, he's using terms like Armageddon. He's making jokes about we're going to bomb the, the Soviet Union in five minutes. I mean, and he, and he does this in such a way that it's kind of blood curdling because it's like he's, he's taking very serious uh, matters and he's turning 
turning them into like little quips and jokes that he's using to kind of impress his audience. So, I mean, again, I, I, I find that, you know, the, the characterization of Ronald Reagan just gets him flat out wrong very often because we look at him through the lens of, say, like 1988, rather than looking at him through the lens of 79 to 80 and onwards. Um, and, and, and if you look at him that way, then you, you do see that a lot of the original, you know, kind of protest punk stuff um, emerges out of, for instance, uh, the reinstitution of the Selective Service Act. This was something that Jimmy Carter did in the face of the uh, Afghanistan, uh, the R Russian invasion of Afghanistan, and because of what was going on with the Iranian hostage crisis, um, he, you know, he basically in recreates the draft that that Gerald Ford had basically closed down. And um, Ronald Reagan campaigns against this um, when he's in debates with Jimmy Carter because he says, you know, he's a libertarian. He doesn't believe in big government. He doesn't want to have people have their lives taken away from them by the government. Um, and then he gets into office, and the first thing that his his kind of you know managers say to him is that you know this this selective service thing is great because it's going to mean we can mobilize way faster than we would have yeah, if we don't have six it. Weeks and think time. about this in the context of Central America, right? We're watching what's going on in Nicaragua and in El Salvador. It's looking like there might be a need for sending ground troops from Reagan's perspective. So he loves this idea of oh my God, we've got a fast path that we can kind of set up the nation to go to war. And it's that I think that is what where you start hearing some of the first protest songs you you mentioned the band tsol i mean their first ep is is full of anti-world war three full of anti-draft um songs and you know you really get a sense of that or the famous song reagan's in um that that comes out of los angeles is all about this you know you're you try to draft me and i'm going to be sent off to march in the sands of afghanistan or something like that um this is really what i think energizes at least a strain um within the wider uh wider uh you know view of what punk would was all about i did it yeah i did want to touch on that i, I came up in the detroit hardcore scene i, I came in mm -hmm. around 85 so a little later and you know negative approach was already broken up but there wasn't in your book there wasn't mid, much midwest uh, coverage there i don't think there were any bands from detroit and articles of faith i know were a chicago band yeah they were mentioned in the book yeah but we weren't i i don't think a lot of the detroit hardcore and punk stuff was necessary political there was forced anger there a oh, left-wing uh political punk but it, when i was coming up it was just like we were skaters and you know honestly we just loved the excitement and the violence and i wasn't politically in tune with anything until i was much older in fact i joined the army in 89 which is about as unpunk as you can get <laughs> um although there are a lot of kids that end up doing that because of the, their backgrounds but um i just it's 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 interesting because I think this is very much a uh, geographic thing too. You had DC, and I always liked you know minor threat, but like the whole preachy straight edge stuff that was not for us. I mean, we were hard drinkers, hard druggers, you know, and um, and then with the stuff in California. But for us, it was what we looked at is it's just like rich kids preaching and. Uh, and that's just, you know, that's my 15-year-old worldview. Obviously, I'm in a little different spot now. But I, I think it's uh, – and what I'm trying to get to and what you say in the book is there isn't a generalized philosophy of punk. I mean, yeah, right. it's not unitary. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's a good point. You know, uh, let's take a second to play a selection from, from Kevin's book because it actually talks about uh, the straight-edge scene uh, and, and some of the, the pros and cons on that. And then – after that, I do want to come back because, Kevin, you do make an excellent point in your book about what the Midwest did have, which was a vibrant zine culture, uh, which you, I think, very correctly uh, connect the dots between that and the music uh, in a way that I don't think has been done before. Uh, as always, we want to thank our reader. It's Shanna Van Volt. Uh, music is provided by the International Anthem Recording Company. And once again, this is an excerpt from Kevin Matson's We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. We're going to be back with Kevin in just about three minutes. The end of 1981 not only witnessed the dead Kennedy's attempt to politicize young anger, but it also clarified questions surrounding straight-edge ethics. Minor Threats in My Eyes EP, issued around the same time of In God We Trust, hoped to clarify what the philosophy stood for. Clearly, it was a moral judgment since it purported that a person had an edge on another if sober rather than inebriated, but it also opened itself up to abuse. Indeed, though Biafra supported the philosophy, believing that political judgments necessitated a certain sobriety, some participants went in dangerous directions for him. 
in the Midwest and in the city of Boston. He noticed that some kids had taken the straight-edge attitude totally the wrong way and enforced it like a bunch of junior cops on people like picking fights with people for having a beer in their hand and treating it like some new conformist attitude. One punk kid from Grand Rapids, Michigan, complained to Touch and Go Zine that straight-edge nurtured violence because of its sense of individual superiority. He went on, reporting that McKay had once boasted of hitting some kid for blowing pot smoke in his face. Wow, I could get a gun and blow him off the world. Does that make me the best? The only thing he taught that kid was he'd better have a better means to protect himself. But for some, like those who edited Bad Meat Zine in Oklahoma, straight as was, as McKay believed, an anti-obsession, pro-positive thinking idea. Minor threats elicited debate more than closure. That's no surprise considering the band's members, like those in Minutemen, constantly argued with one another. McKay explained, We don't necessarily get along that great. We'll practice for about two, three hours at a time, and maybe 20 to 30 minutes will be actual playing, and the rest of the time we'll be discussing, arguing, going off on each other. The band's guitarist, Lyle Pressler, admitted, It's gotten to the point that we fight incredibly. But argument could serve creativity, including the straight edge. As McKay was writing Out of Step, which would become the clearest distillation of straight-edge philosophy, he pissed off the band's drummer, Jeff Nelson. Instead of preaching, don't smoke, or don't drink, the way those words were shouted in the In My Eyes EP, Nelson argued the lyrics should read, I don't smoke, I don't drink, so that the song sounded less preachy, more about individual choice. And in the end, McKay complied. A release of the song with the eyes put in would come out later. But it would still sound to some like commandments which prompted the joke, Why'd the punk cross the road? Because Ian told him to. Humor aside, McKay saw this as a personal statement, not a set of rules. A new command was added as well. The original statements of Straight Edge philosophy, the song Straight Edge and Bottled Violence, played at the Unheard Music Festival, focused on alcohol and drugs. But in Out of Step, the issue of sexuality was introduced with the words, Don't This sounded almost puritanical to some. McKay would be asked over and over just what he meant by and he would explain that he didn't reject sex per se, but rather the belt-notching approach to sexual conquest so prominent in young male culture, or what McKay called the chalk-on-your-bedpost-as-a-scorecard approach to sex. In a long interview with Forced Exposure, he would say, I don't believe in people following their penises everywhere. He suggested that television and pornography had reduced sex to a physical act when it was actually more complicated and emotional than most people cared to admit. Vic Bondi, lead singer of the band Articles of Faith out of Chicago, would call the enemy of McKay's views here cock rock, a term Biafra used to pillory macho music. Heavy metal especially projected a sense of confidence about male sexual virtuosity, which ignored how so many young men had profound insecurity when it came to sex. Bondi admitted that airgloss porn like Playboy or Penthouse had shaped his own views of sexuality, something he hoped to change about himself. Straight Edge critique detached and unrealistic views on sexuality that popular culture evoked. Straight Edge constituted an ethic of self-inquisition, but it also demanded conversation, the sort of conversation that Minor Threat had among themselves and that they would take with them as they started to tour. It also required an ethic of responsibility, staying loyal to your own principles. Two years after Out of Step was released, The Village Voice, never a fan of much 1980s punk, admitted that Minor Threat struggled with questions of ethics, how to live and behave inside a limbo that grows more hemmed in every day. So, Kevin, that was a quick selection uh, from your book that actually talked about uh, the straight edge scene. And I, I have to agree with, with Jeremy. When I was a kid growing up, you know, we thought the straight edge kids were, you know, I can't say what I would have said when I was 15 on the air, but uh, <laughs> I think you can imply that. But I, I do want to point out, and this was interesting to me because when I moved to Chicago, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, and, and so I was really influenced by the, the, the nascent um, New York hardcore scene, which really was not uh, anything like happened in Washington and was mm -hmm. still really, in, in, I guess in my 15-year-old mind, trying to recapture the glories of the days when that first wave of punk had come along, when the Ramones were playing, the Dictators, you know what I mean? Bands that, that really weren't there anymore. As you note in your book, you know, Blondie had become a, a top 40 band. Uh, they, they'd gone disco. So that it wasn't really in that in that area, much as those of us who are around New York City like to imagine we're at the center of the universe. What I remember very vividly was starting to mail away, and there was a publication called Fact Sheet 5, mm -hmm. which oh, yeah. was a really interesting um, 
collection uh, of zines and how you could get them. So basically, it was just a big list that came out in a big kind of oh, soft book. Oh, it was like a book. directory. It was like a directory. It was like the Lumpanics catalog from Amec, which I think was also popular around that time. Mm-hmm. But I remember sending away to get Flipside and Forced Exposure. Uh, there was a magazine called Exit, which was run by Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo, of all things. Oh, wow. And of course, MRR, uh, which you know Tim Yohanahan ran, which was you know nearly unreadable because it was so dense. But uh, he... They reviewed everything. You you heard of bands yeah. that you had never heard of and probably would never see, but you know, for a couple bucks, you could send away and you'd get this dirty cassette about six weeks later in the and mail. We used to pick bands based on their names, yeah, and my reviews, and sometimes it was a hit. Sometimes, sometimes it was, sometimes it was a miss. But but Kevin, I think one of the things you do, and I said this before the break, is is and it's fascinating because that zine culture that interactive culture where people actually said, hey, I'm going to start a zine. I'm going to write about this stuff because I think it's important. That was my favorite part. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to trade these magazines with people I've never heard of, and I'm just going to send art basically all over the postal service. That is a really untold story of, of why punk rock, in a way, I think still has such a grip on what we think of as as American modern music. And I wondered if you could delve into that a little bit because that that to me, like for Mike, that really was one of the big key connective tissues in your book. Yeah, you know, I what I didn't want to do in writing this book was write, uh, once again, another history of all the bands. Um, we've had those books already. Thank um, you. And, you know, I think that, that that's become the kind of model about how you write. And you focus on the bands, you focus on the band members, you focus on the songs that they're writing and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's in the book. But I wanted to kind of take a step back and look at the wider communication and the wider networks that punk was basically establishing in the 1980s. And you're absolutely right. The, the key institution to do such a thing were zines. And... I was fortunate that in in doing my research, um, a, a lot of new archives were opening up, which had a ton of zines. And the advantage that I had was I was able to get to um, not just the zines that I was interested in, but like you're saying, I'd go to the back pages, and what they do is not just Maximum Rock and Roll, but and Fact Sheet Five, but other zines would like list out all these um, uh, you know zines that they were in contact with. One of the best sources was a a, a zine that came out of Washington D.C. called Truly Needy. Um, in any case. Um, what the what you can see is this sort of network of communication going on, and also what I often refer to as a kind of potlatch culture. People are sharing things with one another. They're saying, "If you send me my, if you send me your zine, I'll send you my zine," and it's you know kind of a direct barter sort of system where there's really no cash that's involved in it. Um, and so I think that those zines capture a lot of the debates and discussions about you know what's the meaning of the movement, what's going on in the world that punk should be paying attention to. Um, you know, something that goes beyond just the bands and the songs that we typically associate with punk. I wonder, I, I think that's interesting. And Kevin, I think too, that it, there was regional ideas that mm-hmm. I remember there was a band in Detroit, everyone loved called section eight. And I think oh, yeah. they're mm-hmm. from New Jersey. And like one of our friends got like a seven inch and everyone recorded it. And, and so there was like these region, it was based on where you got your information from. So, and I think that would completely apply to politics too. And obviously for folks like Mike, you know, we didn't have, well, you didn't have the internet when you were a kid either, but you know this is the this is the way we communicated. So sometimes if you got a zine from Southern California, you would know all the bands from Southern California. And I, I remember there was a few bands that were really popular in Detroit, Section Eight being one of them, the Doughboys from Canada, and they were kind of an emo, like a precursor to emo. And um, and I, I I wonder too sometimes if that's I don't know why Detroit never had the political stuff. Maybe it's because it's a way more blue collar than some of the other parts. Well, here, here's a part of the story I'm really interested in. When you're talking about that seven-inch record and people making copies, there's a section in Kevin's book where he talks about a Dan Kennedy's uh, cassette tape where they left one side blank and they encouraged their um, yeah. their fans to record on the other side and basically take down the record industry because the the behemoth of the record industry was was whining and complaining that their profits were being killed and artists were being hurt because people were recording at home instead, you know, uh, copying off the radio or copying other people's tapes instead of going to stores and and buy stuff. And, you know, it seemed like most of these these kids or these young, mostly men, it seemed like, um, knew they were fighting a losing battle. They didn't have the resources. They didn't didn't have the the capital that the corporate powers had. So... Yet they they still try to develop these techniques to I don't know if they thought about it as changing culture, but it it just 
reading it for, as as a younger person now and seeing so many parallels to the Trump administration and what some people uh, uh, tend to grip to in hard times, which is you know like a denial of things that might be depressing and 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 holding on to uh, self confidence at whatever cost. It it seems like. There's nothing you can do to fight the powers that be. And I saw that you're an American historian. You're a professor at Ohio University, I think. And I, I, I was curious while I was reading if you if you could think of historical movements that that um, were able to influence um, ethics and culture on, on, on a national scale. I know Thomas Frank had the book earlier this year about populists, the populist movement. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, though. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a strain within American cultural history, you know, wider American cultural history, that you could go back to um, the early 20th century of Greenwich Village in Manhattan, where you start to see a lot of artists and writers, literary figures, um, kind of, you know, assembling together and putting on dances and, and you know, kind of building a collective culture. Um, they're also trying to attach themselves to the, the to the kind of nascent labor movement at the time. They're reporting mm -hmm. about strikes in Patterson and in Colorado and, and places like that. Um, and so they're trying to make a connection between their own kind of cultural rebellion against, you know, what we would generally call Victorian, um, you know, uh, Protestant, white Anglo-Saxon sort of culture and trying to, uh, you know, basically re-enliven and in, in, along the way celebrate immigrants, for instance, um, as being br bringing in new ideas and new new uh, new new things to America um, and refreshing America's culture. Um, so I think that there were there, in the early 20th century there there were the original Greenwich Village rebels. If you move up the calendar, clearly the Beatniks had some of that, you know, and the Beat writers had some of that. They engaged with things. People like Allen Ginsberg became very very political through the his own beat writing, his own poetry writing. And I do think that in the 60s, you know, there are people. People who are trying to make connections between, say, the kind of growing counterculture and politics. And I think the group that I actually believe was the biggest inspiration to a lot of punks, um, knowingly or not, during the 1980s was the group known as the Diggers, because the Diggers were doing actual alternative things. They were they were setting up free kitchens in uh, Golden State Park, uh, Golden Gate Park, um, to feed young kids who were homeless, who had come and drifted into the San Francisco scene. They were putting out um, warnings about the uh, through the use of posters warnings about dangerous air areas within the hate ashbury about the threat that especially younger women um, were going to run into because of people like the hell's angels and stuff like that and so you can see this sort of attempt to merge culture and politics that i think runs back to the greenwich village scene up through the beatniks up through certain strains of you know hippie counterculture whatever you want to call it um and that's i think probably what in many ways um punk in the 80s kind of built upon again i would say not necessarily consciously this is much more of a person who hopes to bring a kind of larger historical perspective to this and to say look you know these punk kids may not you know think that they were doing similar things to what the diggers and the beats and the and the greenwich villagers were doing but in fact they were you know i mean just because you don't recognize it at the time that that's what you're doing in fact you are and one of the people who i think was uh, that we've already mentioned is is tim yohannan tim yohannan when he's um, uh, you know putting out maximum rock and roll rock and roll which begins in the 82 he's he's an older guy and he had experienced the 60s and he had fond memories of a famous clash in Berkeley California known as the people's park fight and um, what it was was about you know people taking over this vacant lot and throwing down grass freshening it up turning it into a public space and then having to try to defend that against people who were sent in by none other than Ronald Reagan to try to get rid of that um, to try to get rid of the institution, try to get rid of the park and turn it back into something like a parking lot um, or something that was owned by the university. And and so, you know, I mean, in many ways, what Johannan was doing, I think, was saying, I have memories of, of what was happening in the 60s. And I think that they do apply to the present. And I think he made the conclusion is you have to create your own culture, you have to build your own things, and then you have to defend those things against people who attack them. And I think that that I think that's a strain that runs throughout the 20th century. I don't think that 1980s punks were were exceptional. And I don't necessarily think that they were always cognizant of what it was that they were doing. Not that that made them stupid. It just meant that they didn't have a, you know, wider his historical perspective that they could draw upon. 
this is a good place where we need to stop and actually uh, pay attention to the folks that make this radio station possible. We're going to be back after the break. We're speaking with author Kevin Matson. His new book is We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. After we hear some word from the folks that uh, you know pay our bills, we're going to also hear another excerpt from Kevin's book, and then we're going to return in conversation with him. You are listening to I-94 right here on WLPN. This is Lumpin' Radio. And now back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Soon after his San Francisco gala, Reagan flew to Florida to make a historic set of speeches. The first took place in a perfect setting for him, outdoors and on a sunny day at the Epcot Center theme park in Disney World, March 8, 1983. His audience consisted of eager-looking high schoolers, many of them exchange students, watching as he mounted the podium. He opened up with a joke about the weather before eventually expressing his alarm about how the Soviet Union was outperforming America's high schools when it came to mathematics and engineering. Cold War II required smarter kids, Reagan explained, those who got down to the grind and learned about the hard sciences and geometry. But rest assured, the president went on, this didn't have to turn all kids into bookish nerds. After all, there were video games out there that could help educate kids about their future. Reagan beamed with a smile and explained, Many young people have developed incredible hand, eye, and brain coordination in playing these video games. The Air Force believes these kids will be outstanding pilots and they should fly our jets. The computerized radar screen in the cockpit is not unlike the computerized video screen. Watch a 12-year-old take evasive action and score multiple hits while playing Space Invaders, and you will appreciate the skills of tomorrow's pilot. So staring into a video game prepared kids for tomorrow. It almost sounded like something from punk sci-fi, like Rudy Rucker having Reagan's face appear on the screen of a video game. Young psyches were preparing for militarization and magically via entertainment. Reports were heard of armed forces recruiters hanging out around video arcades. After his Epcot speech, Reagan found himself at the Citrus Crown Ballroom in the Sheridan Twin Towers Hotel in Orlando. Here he delivered one of his most apocalyptic speeches yet to the National Association of Evangelicals. The president interested in Bible stories and Armageddon was just about to give a true stem winder. Extending on his belief those calling for nuclear disarmament were simply stooges for the Soviet Union, traitors all. Reagan outperformed the expectations of evangelicals, pointing out his attempt to get prayer into schools and condemning abortion as part of his war against a modern-day secularism. He explained that America was undergoing a great spiritual awakening that could rekindle the story of hopes fulfilled and dreams made into reality. But spiritual rebirth demanded that America face down the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, also known as the Soviet Union. It sounded almost like something from the blockbuster movie Star Wars, the virtuous believers versus the godless warriors. Reagan cited Whitaker Chambers, who back in 1952, as the Cold War ratcheted up, called for Americans to discover a power of faith which will provide man's mind at the same intensity, with the same two certainties, a reason to live and a reason to die. Reagan saw the Cold War as absolutist and religious. The real zinger came when he chastised the nuclear freeze movement. Naive and traitorous at once, the movement helped, in Reagan's words, to remove itself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. That was that. And then thunderous applause rang out as onward Christian soldiers played to the happy crowd. Jerry Falwell under a wide grin when he visited Reagan in the White House just one week after the evil empire speech. The leader of the moral majority joined ranks with the president to paint anti-nuclear protesters as stooges of Russia. Falwell loved the bomb for it ensured the rapture. His compatriots echoed his faith. Phyllis Schlafly called the bomb a marvelous gift that was given to our country by a wise god. Hal Lindsey in his bestseller The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon explained that the Bible supports building a powerful military force. Falwell pressed these ideas the hardest, practically mimicking the president. In his campaign against Friesnitz, Falwell once sermonized, In the Kremlin, Andropov or somebody decides that we need 300,000 to march in Stockholm or Berlin or New York, and the robots stand up and start marching for nuclear freeze. For Falwell, protesters weren't just traitors, they were automatons controlled by international puppet strings. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Happy New Year. Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. And we are speaking with Kevin Matson. He's the author of a new book out from Oxford Press. We're not here to entertain punk rock, Ronald Reagan, and the real culture war of 1980s America. In fact, you just heard an excerpt from his book talking about Ronald Reagan, talking about a famous speech he made at Epcot Center in Florida. 
And before the break, uh, Kevin was telling us uh, how there was a straight line between some of the movements of the 1960s right to the punk rockers of the 1980s. Uh, and of course, you mentioned the diggers. I was actually thinking here of Fred Hampton uh, in Chicago and, uh, of course, the Black Panthers who also set up uh, kitchens and were trying school to— School lunch programs. School lunch programs. Which and, Reagan defunded. Yes. Which, and, and, and so, you know, it's interesting. In this, Milo, what we're talking about and some of the things that, you know, punk was in opposition to was this idea of Reagan's federal government, which was more of a problem than a solution maker. And that's a really radical paradigm shift, Kevin. I, you know, you're an American historian. Maybe you can fill us in a little more on this. But— for the first time, you had people that were elected to higher office. Their their goal was to actually sabotage government. It was to destroy yeah. government. It wasn't to uh, change and use the levers of a, a political yeah, and system. And they were open about this. Yes. I mean, you know, you had people that said, you know, we want to get the federal government in a bathtub and drown it like a baby. Uh, Ronald, Drain the swamp. Right. Ronald Reagan's uh, famous line was, you know, the, the worst words in the English language are, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> And I think, you know, looking at it today in 2020, we've just been through a similar period of right-wing sabotage that in some ways exceeded what, what Reagan did, but is no less troubling. As, as Mike pointed out, you know, Ronald Reagan tried to defund school lunches, as we talked about at the beginning of the show. He, he was saying a, a number of extremely disturbing and scary things about our foreign policy. Could you talk a little bit about why this happened and, and put it kind of in the frame of American history in general? Because I, I do think it was so radical that I see a connection to forming this kind of radical culture that you talk about in the book. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, Reagan is is something t entirely new um, uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I think that if you go back and you look at who's running for the presidency in 1964, you'll notice Barry Goldwater. And Barry Goldwater said all the things that Ronald Reagan basically drew upon. Um, he was just able to convey things in a, in a happier, smiley face sort of way that Goldwater had no penchant for. Um, but the ideas are there in 1964. I think, you know, you study something like the Nixon administration and besides all the scandals and, and Watergate and things like that, um, there really wasn't too much of an attempt to, um, you know, to get rid of the government. And in fact, you know, things like the EPA starts starts under his presidency. Um, Reagan is definitely and consciously someone who says, OK, we can't, you know, overthrow the government even though sometimes it sounded like he was suggesting that that should be done. You know, the government is not the not the solution. The government is the problem, as he would famously say in his first inaugural address. Um, he, he he basically, I think, you know, looks at looks at these positions that have been set up within the federal government, what I think a lot of people would call a lot of Trumpians would call the deep state, um, you know, highly you know competent civil officers who are who are doing their work, calling those people into question and then appointing people at the highest echelons of power who basically want to gut all those things. And so I heard, you know, yeah, one Rick of you Perry. just briefly mentioned someone like James Watt. James Watt is the epitome of the guy who basically is saying, you know, he's, he's a guy who comes out of the Sagebrush Rebellion out West in the 70s and basically says, you know, we've got to get rid of the federal government. We've got to get rid of public lands. We've got to turn public lands over to private hands and, and allow for people to drill and to log and all these <laughs> sorts of stuff. That's the guy who's, you know, running the Interior Department. I mean, that's, that's, that's insane. I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense, but that's very... Very much, I think, what the, the strategy of the right was from, say, 1980 onwards is not necessarily directly dismantle, but sometimes just put people into the head echelons of power and know that they're incompetent and know that they're not going to do a good job and allow the government to gradually kind of, you know, become a, a, a backstage sort of thing. So, I mean, I think that Reagan, I think Reagan's is a turning point in conservative um, movement building and, and conservative attempts to kind of basically gut the federal government. You know, it's it's interesting that you talk about those policies because it seemed one thing that kept popping up again and again in the book for me are, are these ideas being pushed through by that a shiny surface, a smiling face, charisma, um, not talking about the 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 the, the unseemly underbelly, um, and and this um, portrayal of the punk movement as being one unitarian. And, and two, being uh, uh, violent, uh, angry, depressing, um, you know, and that just wasn't, yes, there was a lot of anger and, um, and, and some of the attitudes of, of, of the people you described 
in your book were were off putting to me. You know, uh, Ian Mackay was was one of them. Yeah, I think um, we can thank uh, Leaving from Fear for uh, for that as well. <laughs> yeah, he yeah there he, there was another big one. I love, but <laughs> but there, one of the things I loved about this culture you described is is um, this willingness and and um, ferocity to have open conversation, open sprawling conversation, and to disagree and to have evolving conversations. And it's, you know, you would think that would have come, uh, that would have progressed in in the internet era with all these platforms we have to communicate with each other. But it it doesn't seem to translate no, to there's now. There's no nuance anymore. Well, you know, what's interesting that you mentioned that, and before Kevin jumps back in, you know, there was actually a message board that was famous called PR.net, which is oh, a punk yeah. rock message board. In the very uh, late 90s to early 2000s, that was run by veterans of the, mu- the movement. Um, actually, I think the guys from Moss Icon and Heroin out of uh, D.C., which is a third wave punk band, were, were behind that. And their their idea was to have this message board where, where people could talk and discuss and, and meet up with other people. And it uh, unfortunately you know, flamed out. Because of the same things that tend to flame out along all message boards on the internet, uh, the well found that as you know to, to, as well. You know, the the idea of of um, distance and time doesn't really exist on the internet. And one of the interesting things about the zine culture, which is why I keep bringing it up, is you, you actually had to engage with that. It right. wasn't just like clicking on an icon on your screen. You you had to first of all physically get it, get to pay money for it usually, or barter something for it, and then you had to want to read it, and you had to sit there and think about it. It, w- it was not as ephemeral as dots on a screen. Uh, and I think that changed the way people interacted with each other uh, because – it made you more conscious that somebody had taken the time to actually say these things, whether you agreed with or not. I mean, I think you make the great point, Kevin, about Michael Board's columns in, in Maximum Rock and Roll. The publisher of that magazine hated those columns uh, <laughs> yeah. because Michael Board was a, was a reactionary uh, and libertarian. But yeah. he was published until he died, you know what I mean? Uh, very faithfully in MRR. And, and while I, I read MRR until I... You know, couldn't find it anymore because there's no newsstands. But, uh, you know, I would read that column every week and say, boy, I, you know, this guy really doesn't know what he's talking about. But it was interesting. He was always there. And it reminds me very much of what the former Black Flag singer Henry Rollins has done now for years in L.A. Weekly. Whether you agree with it or not, you know, he is always putting himself out there every week and you have to make an effort to find it. Uh, but that is a link to the kind of conversations that I think Mike is talking about here. Yeah, no, that's those are great points. Um, so, so first up, I should point out that not only was I uh, am I a, a college professor, but my PhD is in, in American history, but more particularly, it's in American intellectual history. And I'm trying to make the case that if you're looking for intellectuals who are trying to you know have a, a discussion with a wider public, this is probably the, one of the best places to look for it in the 1980s. Um, and I think that the, a lot of these people really are kind of budding intellectuals. One of the people that you can see. This most explicitly with is a, a the Tim Yohannan's friend Jeff Bale, mm-hmm. who basically was writing a, a column for MRR for for a number of years, and um, he basically you know c- kind of got fed up with the movement and and tired of the movement, and basically went and got a PhD, and now he's a college professor, and I think he's also something of a of a public intellectual to a certain extent. So I mean, I think that the, the, that there was a way that that this stuff kind of turned on your intellectual energy. It made you like you you were saying, you know, you're sitting down, you're reading the stuff, and you're like you know, having an argument with yourself about what you're reading. I think that's really important. Also, there was a diversity of ideas out there. There was no singular, you know, strain of punk rock. Um, but I, one of my favorite anecdotes that that um, I often tell is that, you know, there's there's these reports of the Minutemen. And the Minutemen, I think, were probably one of the best bands to come out of 1980s punk. Um, and I'm sure there's people who disagree with me about that. But supposedly, when they were touring and they went, they jammed econo as they called it they got in their van and drove around and played different venues um they would get in these arguments d boone and mike watt would get in these like really vicious arguments and they would literally stop in town and go to the library this was you know (laughs) before we had and they'd check on things and say no you see you were wrong this wasn't this is an accurate depiction of british history at this moment and you know i mean that was the sort of activity and you know i mean minor threat also consistently said that they got in huge fights um while they were doing band practices huge fights about all sorts of different issues, not just straight edge, not just the music. They were talking about all sorts of different things. So, I mean, I think that this was this was the place where if you were looking to find a place where you could explore ideas, think about 
what you thought about the world, this was the place to do it. Um, it gave it gave it its home. Um, I don't think it, and I think it was unique because, again, like we've all been pointing out, you know, we're not in the age of the internet at this point in time. I I, I like Jeff Bale have started to move away from the movement myself, and a lot of it's because um, Jamie and I. Uh, do shows together and there was just there's all this like in band and fighting and no one can have different opinions and other bands and and it's it's become uh, like this yeah. unitarian like we're gonna all agree on this is the way it is and it's boring to me but that being said i wanted to ask you too we were talking about things that influence the punk movement i did want to mention dada fluxus situationist because i was thinking you talk about oh yeah I like that. you were talking about in the book uh and you mentioned let them eat jelly beans which uh Ronald Reagan's favorite snack was Jelly Bellies. That was a Dick Kennedy's record? Uh, it was a comp. It was comp, a comp yeah. that Jelly Bean offered put out. Possibly yes. one of the I best did. comps of the 80s, in my opinion. Okay. Cause, yep. uh, they had yeah. Flipper on he there, was. DOA. I just, it was a very wide spectrum. Was Black Flag on that, too, or were they not on that I one? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were in the oh, bad one tour as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was a vi- – and, of course, not to cut you up, that was a vibrant – I mean, some of those bands, uh, there was a huge talent pool in yes. California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Canada. You know, DOA was up there. But, I mean, Flipper, mm-hmm. Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Minutemen, TSO. These, these were heavy hitters. They yeah. could play their instruments. They knew what they were doing. Well, I Flipper mean, couldn't. Right. <laughs> Flipper could play that. I disagree. Flipper, Flipper knew no, what they were doing. they're amazing. As you long know. as they were drunk true (laughs) but what i wanted to mention is you know that the the it's protest art you know that if you look at the cover of that album and i I can vividly see the cover that it's got the red and white yeah black and white behind it and then the black and white reagan on it and uh was it winston winston smith Smith. yeah Yeah. did all Mm -hmm. the alternative tentacles and and i think the precursor to that was obviously crass you know they had the yep yep british um, band crass yeah but i just want to mention you know that i think that there was a spirit of protest art definitely in that movement as well. There was always... You know, I'm, I'm thinking of that book I always see in your house of uh, the Raymond Pettibon. Well, I was oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to bring that up. You know, you know, And you mentioned this, of course, in your book, Kevin. Raymond Pettibon, who did all the art for SST records, you know, Minuteman, Black Flag. I didn't realize he was the brother of the... That was Greg Ginn's brother, yeah. And, and of course, Winston Smith or Jell Biafra. Now, they, they, Those two labels had a very distinct visual identity and a very distinct design language, which helped them... Uh, get their ideas across. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because I mean, Pettibon's still exhibiting today. I mean, he he's, he, he's now a gallery guy. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, he is. Um, yeah, what he was really known for and, and did a good job at was um, kind of taking a, a, a drawing of his and then juxtaposing it with a text that didn't seem to really match the drawing. And so it was this sort of art that always made people go, "What the? You know, what's what's going on here?" Um, and I think he 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 knew his art history. I mean, that's one of the things that he talked about with Mike Watt of the Minutemen constantly was, you know, what was surrealism, what was Dadaism, what was you know. I don't think he was as into situationism, but he. Was was into all sorts of different kind of modernist avant-garde movements. And he was trying to, you know, use that sort of background and being self-taught um, to create what I think is some of the most, you know, interesting artwork that came out of the movement. Winston Smith, same thing. He's very much more, I think, tied into like the tradition of cut-ups, which is something that someone like William Burroughs, you know, did and a, a lot of Dottis did, you know, like letting things kind of juxtaposing the different cutouts that he ha- took from magazines to make a kind of political point. Um, th- that art was very, very, you know, I think it was really exciting. I think that, you know, the other thing to keep in mind that we often overlook is that the years that we're looking at from 1980 to 1985, it's the rise of cyberpunk and literature. There are all oh, these yeah. different forms of expression, be they artistic, be they literary, or Dennis Cooper in poetry was very connected to the punk movement and was doing some of his best poetry in the early 1980s. There's all these different ways that people can express themselves. And so that goes back to this point about it's not a unitarian unitarian movement it's a very diverse pluralistic movement um and there but there i would say that you know keep in mind the, the one of the other people that is in the background here that i talk about in the book is matt graining the creator of the yeah. simpsons yeah. and he's basically kind of honing his own style and his own sort of dark humor um in in what was called life and hell at that point in time he's selling it at, selling it during the late 70s and into the 1980s when he gets syndicated um and you know he's writing stories for the la reader about punk 
punk. He's going to punk shows. He's he's going to punk art shows, and he's you know kind of serves himself as a critic, sees himself as a critic. Um, and so you, there's so many different forms of expression that I think that we really forget that because we focus so much on the music and on the bands, which is fine. I'm not against that, but I think it den it denigrates punk because I think this was a much wider movement than most people really took into account. Plus the fact that it was spread throughout the United States. I mean, who would ever thought that punk would come to places like Oklahoma and Florida? I mean, that's just like remarkable when you think about it in terms of how we what we expect of those types of settings. So so yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I completely agree. There was a lot of different artistic and literary and poetic um, expression going on here, and it wasn't contained. It wasn't just one thing at all. Kevin, we're running out of time here, and this has been a great discussion. We really, first of all, we really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Uh, folks that are interested in Kevin's book, again, it's We're Not Here to Entertain. It's available at all finer libraries. It's available from Oxford University Press. I'm sure you can find it at a bookstore. Uh, you may need to order it, but uh, a really interesting read. Yeah, I, I particularly read. enjoyed you, it. Kevin. So, again, yeah, thanks for thanks doing so this. Thanks so much, Kevin. I just want to leave with, with kind of one final question for you, Kevin, because one of the things you do talk about at the end of the book is how some of the promise of punk rock then soured. You know, you mentioned the uh, the yuppies, and you start talking about Brett Easton Ellis, who actually uh, I went to school with at Syracuse. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I didn't you know, know that. I yeah, and Brett the Palladium and, and all these things that, uh, you know, kind of took over New York City and the changing of culture. And I guess the question I want to leave you with, Kevin, is – did the punks lose? You know, did they lose in terms of popular culture? Did Reagan and the yuppies win? Wow, you know that that's that's a back against the wall sort of question. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I. I I guess uh, th this episode that I'm trying to focus on, I think you have to say that that Reagan won, um, and that the the you know the fact that in 1985, late 1985, um, you know Husker Du is is basically drawing up contracts with Warner Brothers and basically you know ditching the DIY stuff, and there's more and more of that. I think that's going on at that point in time. It's pretty clear to me that you know the corporate culture and Reagan's second victory. Um, puts uh, something of a close on this. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to, first off, I don't want to say punk is dead by 1985. I don't want to say anything along those lines. I think you can still argue that the spirit of punk kind of emanates, uh, you know, after 1985 in different versions. It's obviously for most people would associate it, especially with, you know, the rise of Riot Girl in the late late 80s, um, you know, the rise of grunge and, and, and Nirvana during the 90s, um, you know, and, and so forth and so on. So I don't think that punk ends but i think a chapter of punk ends in a, in and about 1985 that has a lot to do with the with the landslide election that reagan won um in 1984 so i mean again yes i think reagan and corporate culture beat out the punks and how could we ever imagine that it would go any different from that i don't know um you know punks just didn't have leverage and and power um as 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 they as they might maybe have under different circumstances yeah, but nonetheless reagan basically oversees the, the 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 um the victory of corporate culture because the record companies come out of their slump in 83 to 84 in large part because of michael jackson and reagan celebrates jackson and i think in that message you're seeing that reagan knows that he's kind of won the wars on the other hand again i'm sorry to go over overboard a little bit here but you know yeah that's not to say that the spirit behind it the DIY stuff, the 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 belief in different forms of self-expression, um, that those go away. Those still live on, but I just don't, I think there's something unique to the period of time from, say, about 1980 to 1985, which makes it its own chapter. Yeah, and of course, those Husker Du albums on Warner Brothers sucked. Um, Kevin, before we let you go, who was your who was your favorite band of that period? Oh, I would definitely say still the Minutemen. Um, I stuff. liked Flipper. Um, I, there was a band out of DC that most people didn't know, uh, know about unless you were in DC. Um, but they were, sounded a lot like flipper. They were called no trend. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, of course. They, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah they, I thought they, they were great stuff. I mean, I, you know, I st still think the dead Kennedys were, were fantastic, um, in so many different ways. Um, uh, so, I mean, I don't have just one, but if I had to, if, if back against the wall against, I'd probably say the Minutemen. I think because they, they, they engaged politics, but not in a sort of preachy, you know, um, pedantic way. Um, and I think their music was just so much more interesting than a lot of the kind of typical thrash music that we associate with this period of time. Um, they were very, I think, much more experimental and much more open to different ways of, of expressing themselves through their music. 
and Dee Boone, the lead singer who dies in 1985. Um, Dee Boone was uh, was also an activist. He was uh, he was engaged in politics. He was working with CISPs, um, the and with other organizations trying to stop Reagan from from invading Central America. Okay, um, one, so one last I, quick I, question. Sorry to cut you off. At the top of the list. Uh, from the youngster, is is anyone carrying the torch today, or anything, any art movement, any band, any writer, who who or what is carrying the torch today? That's a question for you guys to answer. <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I, 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 I don't think Mike, I can answer Mike that. Can I, I don't, I literally, I don't know. Um, I mean, I dropped out of uh, out of that scene um, in in '86 or so, and so I, I, you know, I, I don't know who's out there at this point in time. Well, we'll leave that for another show. We've been speaking with <laughs> Kevin Matson. He's the author of We're Not Here to Entertain. Once again, it is available from Oxford. I-94 returns next week with a local author talking about the great Sally Rand, a fan dancer. Don't miss that. I-94, of course, is every Thursday and Sunday at 11 o'clock. Kevin, thanks so much thanks, for joining Kevin. us today. Thank we you, really Kevin. appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You guys have been listening to I-94. The Palladium nightclub opened in May 1985, with lines of people trying to get in, stretching entire blocks in lower Manhattan. Just four years earlier, the director of the Palladium, Steve Rubell, had been imprisoned for tax evasion. As chief executive of the most famous discotheque of all time, Studio 54, Rubell had, during the late 1970s, skimmed the cash his discotheque took in. He supposedly fondled himself in big pools of dollar bills. He found illicit drugs for his celebrity clientele, quaaludes and cocaine mostly. He lied and covered up, but seemingly few who came in to dance at the Palladium cared about Rubel's past, so long as he delivered what they wanted, a large yuppie outpost in a city that thump-thumped to an electro-scent soundtrack and Wall Street money. Rubel studied his competition and ripped off his predecessors at Danceteria and Limelight. He installed a dance floor larger than his competitors. He emphasized recorded music over live performances. Instead of the gigantic wall mirrors that framed the inside of Studio 54 so that people could watch themselves and one another dance, Rubel had 25 synchronized video screens throughout, again topping his predecessors. Unlike Studio 54, located in Manhattan, the Palladium was on 14th Street, close to the downtown scene in East Village. The Palladium made hipness a ticket for entry, policed by a door person who determined who could and couldn't get in. Ye Jean-Son had once been a door person at Studio 54 and thought it as an honor to do the same at the Palladium. As she recounted to people, her main aim was to cut down on grade C's, meaning those not fashionably aware, not that classy, usually out of towners, from Staten Island and New Jersey. On the other hand, celebrities were admitted for free. Those locked outside would be the same type who couldn't appreciate all the art that populated the club. Rubel found it necessary to hire an art advisor to fill in space not occupied by video screens. Most of the paintings purchased came from the exploding East Village art scene. Two artists particularly, Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat, who were on a stellar rise to fame at the time. Both had started as graffiti artists whose works appeared on streets and subways of Manhattan. In his earlier years, Basquiat was a high school dropout who sold his postcards and painted sweatshirts on the streets of Soho, while playing a no-wave band called Grey and sleeping on friends' couches. Herring came into the city in 1978 to study at the School for Visual Arts when he first came across Basquiat's spray-painted art, calling it literary graffiti, a condensed poetry which would stop you in your tracks and make you think, akin to Pettibon's one-liners. Herring started to draw bubbly-looking characters on subway station walls. As the 1980s moved apace, both graduated from street art to the East Village galleries, and from there to the more expensive Soho neighborhood scene and finally a nationwide art market that boomed with the rest of the economy. Basquiat moved into the arms of the Soho gallery maven Mary Boone, who could get $20,000 for one of his works by 1984. Herring, too, was selling his goods to the highest bidder. As the village voice columnist Michael Musto would write, Herring clearly has masterminded his ascent from the subways to the world of big business. And as Steve Rubell explained to the Washington Post close to the opening of the Palladium, artists are the stars of the 80s. They are as rock stars were to the 60s and designers were to the 70s. Art was selling, and so too was real estate in the East Village, the area of Manhattan the Palladium banked upon, paralleling the yuppie invasion of Haight-Ashbury documented earlier by Newsweek. Rent prices seemed to correlate with Basquiat's and Herring's sales all skyrocketing. The art critic Craig Owens had noted the connection between the celebrities of the art world doing well and the gentrification of the East Village. He ridiculed the East Village scene as a surrender to the means of the marketplace and as a culture industry outpost where subcultural forms are fed to that marketplace as products of consumption, their vital resistance to dominant culture thereby defeated. The small galleries that dotted the East Village were now farming grounds for bigger leagues, for Wall Street traders as much as the Palladium. 
By October 1985, the alternative publication The East Village I pronounced a funeral. There was no counterculture left in the East Village. East Village art is dead. Greed and envy have disbanded our beautiful community. The East Village will continue to exist as the simulacrum of itself. The neighborhood once known to be a seedy and affordable area for artists and writers was now branded as hip and trendy, a whiff of bohemianism giving way to aftershave. In other words, yuppies were winning the culture wars of the 1980s in the heart of Manhattan. Their victory blared in the lines of people waiting to get into the Palladium every night. Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Kevin Matson, author of We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America, out now from Oxford. This episode originally aired on January 7, 2021, to open our fifth season. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.